Welcome, Michelle. All right. Hi, Jason. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for having me. Awesome. Thanks for hanging with us. Where where in the world are you today, Michelle? I, I grew up in Saskatchewan, but I, I traded the wheat fields and the northern stars or northern lights, excuse me, for the <laughs> bridge. So I'm in San Francisco today. So it's a lot of forest fires right now. So it's kind of a scary time here, but I'm, I'm tuning in from San Francisco. It's great. And you're in a safe spot. Yes. Yeah. No, we're, we're okay, but there's a lot of people impacted and lots of friends, homes have burnt down. So it, there, mm -hmm. these fires are very real. No doubt. Now, look, a lot of people are excited from that intro. They're telling me, uh, wow, Cloudflare, $10 billion, 1,500 people. Tell us, what does Cloudflare do? Sure. Uh, so Cloudflare, uh, we help make any internet property, website, app uh, faster. We protect them from cybersecurity attacks and we help make sure they're reliable. So we do performance, security, and reliability for any internet property. Or um, And our mission is to help build a better internet. So when I used to go to dinner parties when I was your, early getting, at, get, uh, getting started, people said, what does Cloudflare do? And I say, oh, we help make the internet faster, safer, more reliable. And you would see their eyes like glaze out be like, I don't want to talk to you. You're boring. They're like, yeah. you're boring. Turns and, out, and today? Yeah, well, now it turns out the internet being fast, safe and reliable is more cool these days. So it's yes. good. <laughs> That's and who are the types of people that use Cloudflare? Uh, everyone from entrepreneurs. I'm sure many of you are customers. Thank you. And if not, we are love to help you. Nonprofits, uh, developers around the world, all customers, as well as larger organizations. So um, uh, Fortune 1000, Global 2000, large enterprises. It turns out anybody putting anything online, if you're a business trying to put a website or an application online or your workload online, you all care about being fast around the world, secure from online attackers and reliable. Mm -hmm. And so we have a scale that goes from free up to customers paying us millions and millions of dollars a year. And it's, they all have the same use case. So faster, safer, more reliable. So it's, uh, we're really proud of the work we do. And just to get a scale of the impact, like, can you sort of share with us, like how much safer, like you make the internet? Like, is there a way that you're able to measure that? Of course. Yeah. Well, this is kind of, this is again, went from not cool to talk about this to more cool. <laughs> what parties and people zone out when you talk about your business idea or what your passion is. You're probably on to something. Boring becomes cool down the road if you're successful. Right. Um, so yes. today, actually, I'm really proud of this. Uh, today, every day. So we have 27 million internet properties that use us. So it's a big number, about 2.7 million customers around the world. And we're truly a global company. And we stop 45 billion cyber attacks every day on behalf of our customers. And so this was an idea that we started 10 years ago. I literally would, was in your shoes 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. And the idea was, can we use technology to help make cybersecurity a thing of the past? Can we use technology to make internet performance a thing of the past? Can we use technology to make reliability a thing of the past? Mm -hmm. And 45 billion cyber attacks every day with 1,500 people, which is both a big and small number, depending on how you think about it, is pretty amazing. So that's the power of technology. Unbelievable. And and you, you mentioned something interesting. You said that, that you were in our shoes uh, 10 years ago. And you also mentioned that, that you traded uh, the Northern Lights for, I guess, today's fires in San Francisco. Tell us a little bit, why did you choose to start the business in San Francisco? It is. So this is something that gets, and, you know, I think if I had done this five years ago, I'd have a much stronger point of view. And now um, it's a lot less clear. So I, I was Canadian. I'm, I'm proudly Canadian. I'd spent my whole life in Canada and I went to business school down in the U.S. And that's why I was in the U.S. And that's where we started working at Cloudflare. So I was in Boston 
as a student working on Cloudflare, doing grad school. And when we graduated, we decided, let's go give this a go. And the question was, where should we go? I had met my co-founders at business school and we were all kind of from different places. And people are like, oh, you're interested in cybersecurity. You should either pick Atlanta because there's a big cybersecurity scene in Atlanta or stay in Boston. And truthfully, neither of those quite called our hearts. And and mm-hmm. we kind of said, we knew early on, actually. We, we knew very early on. We didn't know whether we were going to be able to make it a go. But we said, if Cloudflare is successful, we knew it was either going to be a big company or not exist as a company. Because again, mm-hmm. the whole point of what we were building is creating a solution that solved a problem for a lot of people, like 27 million internet properties. And mm-hmm. so we wanted both engineers and people who knew how to work at scale, internet scale, and we knew we needed capital. And by the way, we've raised about $1.3 billion in capital between the private and public markets in this last decade. And so, but early on, I, I didn't know how much capital, but we knew we needed a capital. And so back then, when we were students in the summer of 09, the Valley was a no brainer. People, there's. this is where the money was. This is where everyone knew who had worked at scale was or wanted to come. Like that was so, kind of how. So all those people were there, right? All the capital was there. All those engineers that you wanted to hire were there. But when you arrived, did you know anybody? No, we were totally no one. So we showed up here in the summer of 09, knowing like very few people. And we were mm-hmm. not known. We were unknown entities. And we, we mm-hmm. showed up. Um, and it crossed the Bay Bridge kind of with our stuff saying, let's give it a go. And so like you see in the movies, Cloudflare is kind of a movie movie plot where it's we showed up with an idea, very eager, no mm-hmm. track record. And we were able to find some people to back us and say, hey, give it a go. And, you know, fast forward 10 years later, we're a public company, $10 billion market cap, lots of people around the world using us. And again, 10 years ago, the Valley made a lot of sense. What's kind of been sad as someone who's very involved in the tech ecosystem here, although probably good for Toronto and a lot of other cities around the world, is how some of the advantages of making it a no-brainer are disappearing. And that's why today it's a lot harder decision of where to build your company, I think. Um, And so it's not so clear to me how that's all going to play out. But back then, this was definitely the place to be. So one of the things you mentioned in there was um, that you were able to get some, you know, you raised a lot of money on the journey and that you were able to raise some money there. But you also said you started off by not knowing anybody. So it's interesting that you were able to convince some investors there. I'm sure a lot of it has to do with the relationship. How for people just starting to build their network, how did you build those relationships? How did you make those connections? So there's a couple, I mean, again, I've raised $1.3 billion. So I can talk about fundraising all you'd like. So there's a little bit of this to my to my point of view we were really swinging for the fences like we yeah. wanted to build a big big company and again mm-hmm. that's what we are and some people are like wow you're a 10 billion dollar market cap and you know matthew and i want to build a much larger company than this and and we think we have an opportunity to do that so we're we kind of have a saying internally we're just getting started so we were very audacious from yeah. the beginning and um and so we raised venture quite early. We knew that we needed some venture to get going. We could not, it's better to get paid by your customers, by the way, much better path. But right. we we had to build a we're not, we're not talking about that kind of business here though, right? You you didn't want to start a bootstrap company at the beginning. So we're, we're sort of talking about if you want if you want to go on the capital raising path, right? How do you how did you start meeting people that you didn't know, right? Yeah. So build something big. And so it turns out if you're swinging for the fences, some people think you're crazy, but other people are attracted to you, right? Like they're, wow, you're really audacious. Like, and then they're trying to discern whether there's actually a meaningful problem here that's big and whether you're the right people to do it. So again, we were talking about democratizing the internet and mm-hmm. making 
who do you think of the past? And so to most people, we sounded somewhat, oh, oh, okay, like dreamers. And others are like, wait, I'm an investor or I know somebody who does cybersecurity investor. This is kind of interesting. I'd like to connect you. And so our first, our first connection to raising money was through a classmate. So it was somebody um, that we went to school with and her childhood, they were from Bulgaria. She was from Bulgaria. She was studying in the US. Her childhood friend from Bulgaria happened to be an investor in Silicon Valley. And she said, I'm going to introduce you. And she introduced us. And it turns out that woman does a lot of cybersecurity investor. We met her. And it was this amazing conversation where she knew a lot about the problem. So she loved that we were dreaming about these solutions. And she was like, tell me about how you're going to do it. And next thing I knew, she was introducing us to her boss, which was a partner. We went to meet him on a Friday afternoon down on Silicon Valley Road and uh-huh. and Sand Hill Road, which is the famous, you know, where a lot of the venture capitalists are. And I remember he looked, we, again, we showed up there, we were students. And it was Matthew and I, we were there sitting there. And he said, this is interesting. I can write you, a, I, I can write you a half a million dollar check on the spot without checking with my partnership. And I was like, that's a lot of money. And Matthew said, no, we need more. And this is sometimes where having a co-founder is helpful where he was like, no, we need more than half a million. And then Ray, Ray Rothrock said, okay, then you have to come back and pitch to my whole partnership. And so next thing we knew, we were getting ready to come back to pitch to the partnership on a Monday. All these partnership meetings take on a Monday. Yeah. And it's one of these things where it was a, a classmate knew one person. And so we didn't go up and down Sand Hill Road to trying to talk to a hundred people. We actually talked to one or two. We talked to three. And so so it started started with the Bulgarian classmate, which is amazing. You know, think back to that specific ask, you know, what kind of relationship do you have with that student when you made that uh, that ask? And did you, did you ask for, was it an email that was connected? And, And why did that student make the connection for you? She you know, we didn't even ask. She offered and we said yes. And Amazing. you know what? I am amazed at how often like people offer things and people don't say yes. Like Amazing. they, like, it's rude to say yes. And I say, she offered us, we should, yes, introduce us to a friend. And we don't know, some introductions aren't helpful. They become distractions. Yes. But I've been amazed at how many times in my life that people don't follow up. Like that mm. Up or they don't, when someone offers, they don't say, actually, yes, can you? And then follow up, hey, you offered to do this, will you do it? And, and like, you know, there's that saying, 80% of it is just showing up. Right. Things. And so Teddy said, I have a good friend who does um, investing in, we were not close. She was not close to either. I mean, we knew each other, but we weren't close. Yeah. This is not a close friend. It wasn't a big ass. She said, oh, I'm happy to introduce you. Amazing. So, and I just want to, like, this is something I did not understand as an early stage founder. So uh-huh. now, Pretend you're all investors at a venture firm. Your job, if you are kind of your first or second job, like like not the partner who's got the name, if you're if you're the associate at the VC firm, your job is to get the best deal flow in front of the partner. So their mm. job is to know everybody and know what's going on and be interested. Now they say no most of the time, but their job is to know deal flow. So part of it is their job is to know the thing that entrepreneurs are coming up and the ideas. Sure. And and so knowing that, it kind of was like a win-win. She covers our area. It was a good use of her time. It was a good use of our time. And again, we have a very happy start ending. Again, it's a good smoothie plot. <laughs> yes. But I think it's not an inconvenience. Their job is to know people. And have you found along the way that you've been also sort of paying that offer forward? Like, do you, do you find yourself going out of your way to offer things to up and coming startups and entrepreneurs as well to try to make connections like the one that was made for you? So many people have paid it forward to me. And I feel like the best part of it tech is people are really open and try to do that. I, yeah. there are other industries that are all about the power brokers. I feel like tech has a lot less of that, which yeah. doesn't get celebrated enough. And so 
I am constantly amazed at how, again, people are willing to say, I can introduce you and then they just do it. And so, yes, I've tried to be a good steward of that. Sometimes I fall short and I, and you know, you get busy and you forget to do it, but I really try. And so I guess that's the, you know, many people reach out to me on LinkedIn or ask me questions and I try to reply to all of them because I have benefited from that so many times in my career. And I really, I think this, the spirit of paying it forward, giving Mm -hmm. back actually can connect you or this is how we thought about it saves yourself a lot of hassles and gray hair and and tilts the risk reward uh, risk reward ratio in your favor and at the end of the day as you just want what your vision is to come to life and so it's all about making it more more viable not less viable and, and what's amazing about that belief that you wanted to build something big and you were trying to tilt the risk reward in your favor was the time that you started cloudflare it wasn't necessarily the time that looked to most like it was going to be the most beneficial risk reward trade-off, right? No, this was the summer of 2009, which obviously the pandemic tops all of that. But like back in the summer of 2009, it was right after the financial crisis of 2008, yeah. October of 08. It was a doom and gloom time of of the decade. It, it, people were not optimistic. It was hard. Do you remember to like any specific people giving you advice that it was just like a really bad time to start a business? It was. I mean, actually the whole genesis of Cloudflare was I was a student and we came and I was a Canadian who was down in the US doing business school and we did a week long immersion trip to the Silicon Valley and it was professor. Wow. I was going to Harvard Business School. One of our most people did these immersion programs, but they usually went to other countries. They went to Israel or China or visited other countries to see how they ran different sorts of things. And it was the first year they were offering one of these week-long professor-led trips to Silicon Valley. And I was really interested in building. I'd seen it at I Love Rewards Achiever. I'd seen what was possible. And, And I was like, oh my God, I can come to the Valley with a professor led. And so we came out here and it was amazing. There was 40, 40 or 50 of us um, who showed up. A third of us um, were wanted to be venture capitalists. A third of the students on that trip wanted to go into investing. A third wanted to were entrepreneur, entrepreneurs with ideas that were there trying to get it going. And a third of us, which is the kind I was in, wanted to find the next Google before it was Google. Right. Like, the early, early employees. They wanted to be the early talent. I wanted to be part of the team because, again, every people, companies are just groups of people who are passionate mm-hmm. about building things. And I was like, I got a taste of that. At I love rewards. And I was like, I wanted to see that. I want to go do it again at scale and be part of a team that was really going to make an impact in the world before it had already become. So I was here sc- scoping out the next hot thing. So here we are in January of 09 and we met all the like the, the business school, Harvard did an amazing job lining us up with all the hot entrepreneurs, small and big mm-hmm. at the time, all the investors. So we were meeting, this was back in 09, Zynga was the hot thing, Mark Pinkwith and mm-hmm. Jim Breyer met with us. And I was like, it was my sort of Hollywood. I felt like I was like on a movie set because like, here we are for a week. Uh-huh. And it was just this amazing experience getting to meet. And again, there was 40 or 50 of us. It was a small group meeting all these folks. And the mood was not rosy. It was right after Sequoia had written that really um, famous memo of yeah, RIT. Yeah. And it was just a really, people were cutting costs. It was a scary time. So it was certainly not the, you should go, anyone can start a company and so can all of you. It was, it was a much more cautious sort right. of tone. Um, and obviously fast forward today, it's totally different circumstances, but mm-hmm. it is still a cautious tone. And what you will see as you go back and look through history, many of the greatest biggest companies are born out of downturns mm. because jobs aren't as plentiful, right? Mm-hmm. And if you really have conviction, 
you stand out among other sorts of things. So we ended up coming out here and we were the only in tech investment, Venrock, who did letter series A, um, made that year. And so it was certainly, we were lucky. We definitely got lucky, but mm -hmm. they, they, they picked their bet. They picked us. And I mean, by the way, that turned out to be a great bet for Benrock. We returned <laughs> a lot of money to that fund. Like, and I'm proud of that. I'm proud that I made our, my investors money and I want to make all my current investors money. Like, I think that that's a good thing as a business. I guess you never stop raising. <clears throat> you never stop raising. <laughs> right. And so it's the idea of if you think you're solving a meaningful problem, mm -hmm. I don't think bad idea to do it in a downturn. There's a lot of good reasons to do it. It's it there there but it's not easy. But if you can get it going, you just look at the the data and the history lesson and it's like, wow, there's a lot of really great companies that have been born out of downturns. So so you did it and now you're the example of that. And what's amazing is that you had set out to to maybe join one of those next big things and you actually created it. Tell me a little bit about how the journey sort of starts uh, and ends. Like you started as a founder, but now, I mean, no one, I mean, when you're at this level, you've got to be an executive in order to continue managing your company. Not a lot of founders at this level are still operating as executives. So tell us a little bit more about that transition and, and your journey. It's true. Sometimes like you kind of ask yourself, who am I? I'm a founder, I'm an operator, I'm an executive. It is, you, you're a lot of different things. Uh, yeah. and, and it is a little bit of a identity and the rate at which you have to change and adapt is yeah. unlike anything else I've ever done. Um, you know, I, this is, I think, I, I mean this to be really motivating to the group here. So, you know, we are building Cloudflare and we, things have always gone well for us. And even when things go really well, there have been so many hard things. Mm -hmm. And so just building, building something from scratch the highs are highs, the lows are lows. It's amazing. It's exhilarating. It's like you're so empowered, but it is messy and hard and mm. a lot of time. So like it's all of those things wrapped up together. And I just remember somebody telling me, it was actually George Lee. He used to run tech, uh, investment banking for all the tech side for Goldman Sachs for many years. Mm -hmm. And again, he's someone who did this for 20 years. He saw all the success stories ahead of me. And I remember it was a couple of years in and he said something that was just so clarifying to me. And, and I think it was, you know, as a Canadian, I was an immigrant, I'm a woman, I'm in like infrastructure. Like there's a lot of, there's a lot of pieces. And I remember him saying something that just like was empowering to me. So I'm going to share this here was the best founders I've worked with are the ones who have incredibly high rate of learning. And, and then I paired this with something that I heard Evan Williams say once, who was the founder of Twitter. Mm -hmm. Um, and that feels like a lifetime ago, but that was kind of like in my history book. And he said, everyone's just making it up as you go along. You kind of pair that together and it's most successful founders are first at first time yeah. founders. And so you believe in something, you have a passion to do something. It's the rate at which you learn. It doesn't matter if you know everything today, but can you figure it out? Can you surround with yourself with folks? And so as soon as I kind of started to think like that, a lot mm. of these became a lot easier because then you say, okay, we're in a new territory. I don't know what to do. How do I go seek information from others and then make a decision? Or how are you just okay with actually don't know the answer and actually saying that to your team? And there have been many times along the way, mm -hmm. the first offer, I probably wouldn't have said it, but what Matthew, who's my business partner and I, um, and the three of us started, Matthew, Lee and I, and two of us, Matthew and I are still running the business. Lee, unfortunately had a health issue and had to leave many years ago. But there are many times along the way where we've said to the team, we don't know, let's go figure it out. Mm -hmm. And when you say that, then it gives your other leaders permission in the company to say, well, we don't know, let's go figure it out. And, and then it becomes 
problem solving becomes a team sport versus a one person sport. And I think we've been able to make a lot better, built a lot better business because of that. And so mm-hmm. the rate at which you learn, I guess, within is the the best way that I've been able to scale. And you know, what I sometimes have seen over the years, because I now know a lot of folks and we've been running Cloudflare for 10 years, and a lot of other companies have either been acquired or kind of um, uh, acquired or, or, or mostly acquired. And people, founders take themselves out of the game without being asked. Like they take themselves out because they think they can't, the rate of learning has run out. What's an example like that, that sort of feels like a, a challenge that wouldn't be surmountable that where you might give up that you've, that you've overcome and, and you decided to get to learning to go, to keep going. I just, you think, oh, there's too much process or systems, but it's, you kind of just embrace it. And it's like, oh, wow. When we, like, I guess when I, when I, there were so many times again, all hard along the way yeah. where you feel like, wow, this is, we are so bad at this. Like, <laughs> and that's so core to what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And then you realize you get better at it. And like, as a business, you solve it. And you look back 18 months later, you're like, wow, we used to be terrible at this. And now we're actually pretty good at it. And I think it's when you can acknowledge things that you're terrible at as a Mm -hmm. business, and you can come up and say, let's figure out and get better at it. We've actually been able to make a long amount, a lot of progress, a lot of things, but the, the, where this all came into focus for me, this kind of where people sometimes take themselves out of the game. I'm like, stay in it, stay in it. It is an amazing journey. And I, I hear things like, oh, it gets too big, too much process. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I wonder if that's just code word for saying, I'm not sure whether like more imposter syndrome, am I still the best person to be there? And I guarantee mm-hmm. you care about what you're doing and you can see the folks, you probably are. And when we went public last year and we had 150 people come to the New York Stock Exchange and at the time we had about 1200 people, and it was like this moment in my life where I realized it was every single person at Cloudflare who cared about our customers and building the best thing we can to help build a better internet, that we created something really special and valuable together. And it took all of us. It, yeah. took every, it takes every single person showing up every day and caring to make it work. It put it all into focus. And I thought, when else in your life does it take that many people to do something that matters? And we're gonna talk about how you built that team. But first I wanna do uh, some Q&A. How about okay. that? Okay, so we've got a bunch of people uh, who are entrepreneurs in this tech community and they've been watching and they got questions for you. Uh, so I want to use this opportunity for you to also give some advice because we talked a lot about that from your perspective. Uh, but now let's also bring up some insiders from TechTO to ask the question. So who do we have uh, first coming up? Um, what we've tried to do is choose some entrepreneurs that are starting their journey and scaling their journey and thought that they would be great to have them come and ask you their questions. All right. So let's see if they are coming up. Uh, the first one I'm hoping is going to be Sandeep. Sandeep's building remitter. Is he coming up? Hey, Sandeep. Hey, guys. Uh, go ahead. What's your question? Hey, um, hey, Michelle. Great to have you here. My name is uh, Sandeep Todi, and one, I'm one of the two co-founders at uh, Remitter. Um, I had sales. I had sales and marketing, and my role is to establish ourselves as a market leader in the SMB payments space. Uh, so, to give you a quick background about what we do, uh, think of a small business who needs to pay a supplier like halfway across the world. Uh, here's what happens: you know, you make a trip to the bank, and in return, you get tons of grief. That's that's actually what happens. Like they don't know when the money is going to reach. They don't know what they're going to get charged, uh, and how long the payment is going to take. Uh, what we do is uh, we solve this uh, by linking banks in Canada with banks worldwide uh, so that their payments can get across uh, within one day. So our platform takes care of all of that. Um, 
we launched this product in 2018 and we are currently at a growth stage uh, you know even if i say so myself uh, we have customers across like literally every major city across canada um, and we are not we are now kind of you know figuring out how do we scale this business uh, to the one point approximately 1.1 million uh, small businesses across the country uh, my goal is that uh, we, we should be, you know, capturing about 10% of the SMB market, uh, you know, in the next couple of years. So uh, I have two questions for you. So, you know, I'm going to divide it into two parts. Uh, with your experience in scaling up and, you know, something about what you said, uh, you know, nothing nothing really prepares you for all the challenges, uh, you know, that come up. And uh, especially, uh, you know, you mentioned about scaling up the organization and all of that. So first question is, uh, what strategies, uh, you know, should one be exploring, uh, especially when scaling up uh, a market for a fintech product, which is targeted small businesses? Thank you, man. That was a great question. It's awesome. You're killing it at Remitter. So excited to have you up here. Uh, and really the question is, he's hitting an inflection point and he's trying to figure out how I think He's going to go from founder to executive, and he's really thinking from a marketing perspective. Were there marketing issues or challenges that you had that you had to sort of re-envision your skill set that you can sort of share with him? Okay. What is hire people better than you to do this? Yes. I love it. That's the so, daily double. Yeah, the daily double. I yeah. mean, I... Um, I, I uh, I mean, you can never outspend someone larger than you. So you got to yeah. find ways. You The way that I would think about it that really worked for us was how do we take every dollar and make it go further? So find clever ways to yes. connect and make yourself. You Entrepreneurship is all about being a puffer fish. You got to <laughs> seem bigger and further along than you are. And uh, ex exactly, Jason, someone got me a, a, an ornament for the holidays with the puffer ship, fish. And it's true. It's raising money, recruiting. Mm -hmm. We're always... I used to go to things, people were like, oh, I thought Clover was so much bigger when they said we, when I told them we had a couple hundred people, they're like, I always thought you guys were bigger than that. And I thought that was a compliment. And so you yeah. kind of want to make every dollar. So on the marketing side, yeah, you gotta, you, you're not going to be able to outspend. Amazing. If you're large in this space, you're never going to have a marketing budget as big. But you, but but you can't hire better, I think is the point. You can hire smarter. Hire someone else other than you. Don't figure out, hire someone who to come in and build these because that sounds like it's going to be critical to getting your business model to work. And so you should yeah. go find somebody. But it's a place where you should lean in and hire someone to do it. And the other thing I will say, this is no matter what business line you're in is really important, is one thing that startups have that big companies don't have, besides a lot of heart, is you can have a personality. So mm. use it. You have a personality online. Hopefully you haven't lost the personality as you grow though. Hopefully it's something that you keep developing. No? You do, but there's more rule. There's more, there are more stricter rules of how mm. much personality you can have. And of course, and again, the stakes get higher. We, I think we sell a personality. I think I like to think I still do, but, but you do, you, there are higher stakes. And mm. so I, just, I do think you can have a personality early on. You can, Again, you should play to your strengths, but speaking and online and writing, you can do a lot more without having to check with your legal team. And you totally. should. Yeah, because hopefully at the beginning, you don't start with the legal team. All right, let's try Let's try another um, insider's Q&A, shall we? Let's get another insider up here. Uh, let's bring up, let's bring up Arthur. Arthur, are you hanging with us tonight? Let's get you up on stage. Another uh, entrepreneur in the TechTO community. Hey, Arthur. Hi, Michelle. Pleasure to meet you. Um, my name is Arthur Nishov. Um, I work at TD on building a startup that is going to be a platform for head-to-head esports betting matches. Oh. So 
Yeah, it's cool. It's basically like, um, you know, people can play video games against each other, betting on their own abilities and skills on uh, on uh, our platform. Um, mm -hmm. And my question today is really around starting a business in a recession. Um, I haven't taken the full-time leap yet, and I'm pretty comfortable right now in my bank job. And um, uh, the times are pretty tough right now, so I'm just a little bit worried, you know, when is the most appropriate time to kind of make that jump into full time? Is it after we've raised funding? Is it before that? Um, what are your kind of thoughts on that? What is momentum? <laughs> is the answer? I uh, look, well, there's lots of ideas. It's when you think that there's something like, are you solving something that can turn into a business? And, and, and uh, there's two parts. Are you solving a meaningful problem mm -hmm. and can you do it? And it's as soon as you have that, you should go for it. Um, and so if you really believe in this idea and you're like, I want to be part of it and I got to see where this goes, go do it because you're going to, it's going to open doors. You're going to learn so many things. I think it's the wrong time if you just want to do it because you want to be an entrepreneur and you think it sounds cool. Like it's really, mm -hmm. you got to solve a meaningful problem is step one. And then step two is you got to build a successful business. And, and, and I, I don't expect step two on step one, but there's no way you're going to be able to build a good business unless you solve a meaningful problem. So it's really get conviction around the problem you're solving. That means something different for every single person. But as soon as you have that, then you should go for it because you're not going to be able to do it part time. And, and you're going to expand yourself being a puffer fish in ways that you never thought possible going through this experience. And you'll never go back to the same shape again. And that's how you learn and grow as a person. I, I love it. And um. And I, I hope that's advice that he takes. And I hope that's advice that a lot of people here take. Um, also, when you hang out and listen to Michelle enough and hang out with the TechTO community enough, the stuff gets normalized. And if you're worried about it and you're scared of sort of tackling a big problem that you know exists and you can't believe no one else has tackled it and solved it in the way that you want to solve it, uh, it becomes more normal and you get started. All right. We will do a little few more questions after. Uh, let's keep going. I wanted to talk about something that you said there, the first Jeopardy answer, which I thought was so cool which is what is higher people better than you. Talk to me about the first person that you felt that way about. Like, how, how did that go about? Did you make some mistakes early? Like, how did you figure out this, this Jeopardy answer? Yeah, yes, yeah, well, a lot of scar tissue. Uh, so we've done everything. I mean, look, we, you people, best part of my job, also probably the hardest part of my job, and so that's gonna, I, I don't think I'm unique as a founder. All of you are gonna learn that. I think it's just, again, companies are just groups of people who are showing up and building things. And so you mm. gotta, it doesn't matter how great you are, you gotta bring a team along with you. Um, and so a couple things. So, you know, early on, you have a lot of doers, a lot of individual contributors, and they were all better than me. They all knew their domain a lot better. We had, you know, engineers and big data analysts and technical operations, and I didn't have any of those skill sets, but we all really cared and we were able to come together, but we were all individual contributors and, right. and we cared about this idea of, wow, we want to help make the internet faster, safer, more reliable. We want to help make it better. We wanted to build this for our customers. And I, there was 20 of us working our tails off that bought the first beta off the ground and scaled mm -hmm. to a lot of initial customers and users. And it was, we were working very, very, very hard for because we kind of were a rocket ship that took off. But I remember the first time we brought in an external um, executive and it was, we oh, yeah. were 70 people. And actually that person still is at Cloudflare today. Uh -huh. It was so interesting because this executive, we were about, again, 60, 70 people. He spoke different. 
He wore different clothes. He was more polished than all of us. He spoke mm-hmm. slower than all of us. And I thought we were like, you know, we got to get things done. He's like, well, what's the process? And I was like, <laughs> it's done. And he's like, okay, hold on a minute. Like we have customer commitments. Anyway, his name's Chris. Yeah. He's, he's still our president of field operations today. He kind of joined when we had about 5 million in revenue. And this year we're projected to do about 404 million in revenue, 404 to 408. And, and I think what he did was everyone stood a little straighter. Every mm. manager in the business got a little bit better when we brought in this other person because he was more polished and more experienced. And mm-hmm. I think that made us all better. Now we've also misstepped. We've also hired people that weren't good fits in lots of different ways. So we spent a lot of time hiring up front. We were very mm-hmm. comfortable. We had lower attrition than other startups. I'm proud of that. I think it's easier on your culture if that's the case. Mm-hmm. But the people you start the journey with also aren't the same people you end the journey with. It so wouldn't have been right to hire Chris as the first hire, right? When you were building the team. There wasn't. At first, we had to actually solve, figure out whether we had could solve the meaningful problem. We, I mean, right. you don't. I, I think sales and marketing for some businesses they know on day one or the, the money's coming in. Okay, well, great. We didn't have that. We had to build the tech first that actually get some customers to see whether we can make this work. Uh-huh. As soon as we had that, then we brought someone in. Okay, we didn't have that DNA in the company to say, okay, how do we go scale and make it a repeatable process? One thing I wish someone had told me early on mm-hmm. and maybe some of you are a little bit early but i'm going to tell you now because i didn't was not thinking about this we were a very technical driven company we were all right. about technology we are very r d engineers the tech solution we we build we move i mean many bytes around the internet at any given second and that's how we make it faster safer like more reliable we are super geeky and technical and that's what it was all about mm-hmm. At some point, you got to realize actually the business metrics and having good business metrics is really cool too. It's not just Mm. about that. It's about can you build a good business around it too and the mission and the people, all these other things. And so, and sales is all about a repeatable motion. Is it Mm -hmm. repeatable? Is it repeatable? And I now think that's very cool. But back in the day, at first, I was like, why do we need this? This seems like silly. Is is there a particular metric or comparable that you remember at first dismissing, but then it came to be maybe like your most loved metric? Yeah, I mean, so as a SaaS business, we're a SaaS business, we're a recurring SaaS business. There's only four metrics that matter. And I don't know why everyone doesn't sing them from the roofs. It's like customer acquisition, retention, expansion. So you got to be able to acquire customers, you got to be able to keep customers, and you got to be able to sell more of those current customers. Like, and all that drives revenue and revenue growth. Revenue growth matters a ton. But yeah. like those three pieces that you got to be focused on, they're different dynamics, related, yeah. different dynamics. And then the fourth one is gross margin. And can you deliver the service in, in a profitable way or in a high gross margin way? I, again, now we're obsessed about these metrics. <laughs> I, you couldn't have started a business obsessed with those numbers because at the beginning, if you have no tech, there are none of those numbers. There is no acquisition, right? right? There is no retention. You're right. You have to build, you have to build the, the technology. And so again, I think, yeah. I think if you flex one, if you don't want to be all tech, no business, you certainly mm-hmm. want to be all business and no tech. The sweet spot, in my opinion, is if you can do something using technology that's truly differentiated, mm-hmm. you can attract an amazing team to do that and really solve problems at scale. I mean, there's just so much goodness with that and mm-hmm. you can a great business around it. Then you have something magical. So I, I want to ask about the first of these four magic metrics, acquisition. Can you remember the first? Can you remember your first customer? I can. It was so hard. <laughs> we, we ran a private beta. I, I'm a big fan of 
we are building mm-hmm. a product. We were embarrassed when we launched it. So we wanted to do it in a quiet setting. And there's a lot, we did a private beta. There's lots of product hunt. There's lots of different ways to find initial users these days. Right. But we, we did a private beta and it was really hard to get the first 10 customers to sign up. Actually, and what is somewhat embarrassing, I had, we were so frugal. We didn't, we were no, we did not have a lot of money, right? We raised a couple million dollars that disappears really quickly. Mm. We were so frugal. And so I had like a, a Ikea box. Um, I tore off a piece of that cardboard and I made like a, what's like an odometer up to a hundred. And when we were the first hundred customers, we were going to take the team. There were six of us to Vegas. And, and every every week I would color in the next one. Like it was just so ghetto. You, you, you used the same Ikea cardboard flap all the way to a hundred. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I flap and I would look it up every week and it took us a long time to work hard. And, and what, um, and it was friends and family and, or not family, friends and friends of friends and strangers. Yeah. Older, you know, like it, it kind of was, it, it was not pretty. It was messy. Yeah. But how, did, how did you even know? I mean, to, to even get that first customer, how did you even know there was a market for this software? Like how, before you went out and it was hard to get the first one or the first hundred, like what conviction did you have to even build the tech? Yeah. So we, so um, we did a survey. Mm. So, and the survey results is what gave me all the conviction I needed. Um, and so, and I can tell you, a little, there's a backstory to the survey. Can you tell us about the survey? Yeah. I'll tell you about the survey. So there, um, we, I sent like a good student to try and decide if there was a real problem here. Uh, like I told Arthur, is there a real problem? So this is how I figured out we had a real problem. So I didn't know a lot about internet security, performance, reliability. I knew a lot about a lot of things. I didn't know a lot about this problem set. So I, I didn't really know if it was a problem. And we sent a survey to 500 um, small website administrators. We called them mm. webmasters. You can see how old we were when we did this. I would never use that term today, but back then we did IT administrators today. You just found the list online or you had well, the list? Mm-hmm. Sure, Matthew, there was this Cloudflare kind of spun out of something Matthew and Lee had done as a hobby project mm. before. So they, they kind of had an email list. So we picked 500, we emailed them and the survey mm-hmm. said things like, how much do you care about like internet security or web spammers? Like, and, and then the second part of the survey was, what do you do to solve the problem? So the first part, was like, how much do you care about this? And the second part of the survey was, you know, what do you do about it? Mm-hmm. The, the, the answers were things like, uh, web spammers are criminals, um, the scourge of the internet, and they belong in jail. Wow. Uh, web spammers, wow. yeah, no, I, I mean, they, they steal resources. They're the, they're the, like, it's like web spammers steal resources and shouldn't be allowed to do what they're doing. Web spammers make me believe in the death penalty. Wow. I mean, that's wow. what the result said. And so you think, holy smokes, there's a real problem here. And then the second part of the survey is how do you solve it? And these were all fairly small businesses, develop, single developers, prosumers. All of them had Band-Aid solutions. And mm. so this is where the big aha conviction for me was, wow, could we use technology to solve mm. this problem? And that's what we really kind of figured out. And as soon as we kind of feel like we found an architecture that could really work that, and I was like, if we could make the internet safer and faster, more reliable for small businesses and developers, and then eventually big companies, I would be really proud to do that. And that's that was what gave me conviction to go. And so our initial customers went back to these people said, hey, do you have problems? Do you care about web spammers? If so, try Cloudflare. We can help solve that. And, you know, again, early on, our first product, I was embarrassed by it. We had a long list of features. It didn't have any of it, but we were like, ship it. We're going to get the first couple customers on it because we, we got to start getting feedback. 
And I just remember that that first time where we got like a customer, one of our initial private customers or beta customers wrote in and said, oh my God, I, I, my my page, there's always a cron job that runs at two in the morning. My pager goes off. I haven't had a good night's sleep for three years. Last <sighs> was the first night that the cron job didn't go off. My pager didn't go off because you stopped the attack. Like the, and, and I had the first good night's sleep ever. And I was like, wow. People said, would like write to us saying, this has made my life so much better. It's making it faster. And and again, not all of them. Some of them did not like it. But like I'm just saying, it was those those moments where we held on to those quant- qualitative feedback, both on understanding the problem and solving it for our customers. And we use that as fuel to both hire and to keep going. Because you have a lot of psyche stuff going on. There's highs and lows early on. At your stage, everyone on this call, you probably have 10 highs and lows every single day. You kind of feel like you go home at the end of the day feeling like you've been in a washing machine or a roller coaster, it's exhausting. And it's those mm-hmm. moments of customers saying, you are making my life better. Thank you. And you're just like, wow, I created that. We did that. And that's what gave us fuel to keep going. I'm unbelievable. Uh, inspirational story. I think for, for a lot of people here, uh, the idea that they get started with a survey to give them a little bit of confidence and then, you know, to get those first customers and to get that kind of feedback to keep going. Uh, super excited. Um, let's do another insider question. All right. Who are we bringing up, Leah? Who's coming up to ask their question now? I'm excited. You know, what we've, what we've chosen here, Michelle, were um, all different members from TechTO who are building companies like Fatima. Hey, Fatima. Hey, how are you doing? Awesome. Thanks for hanging with us tonight. Thank you. All right. What is your question? So, well, hi, Michelle. Hi, Fatima. Uh, Thanks for everything you've been talking about. I actually just texted a Bulgarian friend of mine being like, where's my investor? Yeah, you can ask them. They might know somebody. Good for you. I know, right? I just like told, told her basically this story. So I am a co-founder of VRAI. We are a marketing software as a service uh, startup that helps retailers, uh, small and medium-sized retailers, individualize their marketing. And we just launched, and we are currently this week onboarding for four customers. Uh, extremely both excited, scared, and like fixing bugs in between <laughs> and everything. And I know that you've just started touching upon all of these things, but if you can talk a little bit more about securing uh, the first customer, the 10th customer, the 100th, like what it took and how you've actually onboarded all of them, that would be like really, really great. Thank you. What is, what is set expectations appropriately? Uh, so congratulations. I mean, that's a huge milestone to onboard those first customers. And again, I, I, I just met you, but I do think setting expectations like early on, I don't, I, I think it's better to set expectations in the sense of knowing that it's early or private beta or whatever you're going to call it, beta, alpha, so that they know that there might be bugs. Cause like, let's face it, building software takes time. So there are gonna be bugs and it's better in my opinion, early on if customers know, and there's so many that will raise their hand to be part of it. They want to be early adopters of something new and cool. And they actually probably wanna even help you find the bug. And that's maybe even why they're signing up. It's, hey, we wanna be an initial user so we can give you feedback. So you build to what we need over time if they're a larger organization. And so I think setting some of that expectations up front can be a huge advantage. Um, one of the things I'll give you a story that happened later on, but just like where we really walked in the shoes. So we started developers, small businesses. We had a lot of them. Their expectations were 
you know, if we kind of were a little wonky or found some bugs, they were more willing to, to be, um, to, to help us fix through it. It was great. Mm. Over time we went, we got larger and larger customers. And it turns out when someone's paying you $50,000 a year, their expectations are higher than someone paying you $20 a month. Makes right. sense. And that then at some point, this is a true story. This is what happened. Again, this was further along, but just to give folks this idea of like set expectations, in my opinion, is better, I, I think is a good, again, you're in this for the long term. We've been building Cloudflare for 10 years. It's a long term. It's not this year. It's a long term. Take a long term focus to this great business you're building because you've got awesome technology. And so a couple of years down the road, um, so early on, was we had this private beta. So people expected it to break and they want to feedback. So that was good. But then you come out of that and then people have higher expectations and the more money they pay you, the more expectations they have. So this is what was a real life story. At some point we had um, one of our salespeople was so excited. They were about to sign a multi-million dollar deal. And it was like, and his boss, Chris, who I told earlier, this executive was thrilled. He wanted to sign multi-million dollar deals too. It was like a big moment for the company. Mm -hmm. And they they came and told Matthew and I the great news. And Matthew and I said, no, we can't take that customer. And they were like, what? And at the end of the day, it's like, no, no, no. A multi-million dollar customer is going to have a very different expectation than where we were at. And we didn't think the company was ready for it. And we kind of said, we're not ready for that. We are going to not meet their expectation and back to retention and expansion and act, like the metrics that matter we're like a customer who's unhappy and leaves after a year is actually not good for us because not only that we're going to miss the chance for them they're going to tell all their friends everyone knows each other they're going to tell everyone that we're not reliable mm. so they were really upset our salesperson and our head of sales was really upset they did not like the decision but, but you, were you able to build the product to a point where you could confidently bring that client on yeah, well, exactly what happened. So we went back to the customer and it was, hey, we're not ready for you right now, but let's stay in touch. We're going to be ready for you. And 18 yeah. months later, they did sign up and they were happy for many years. And so I, I think that we will always have taken a really long-term focus to the business. Yeah. You build something that's going to be a long round for a long time. And so take customers today, revenue matters, but mm -hmm. not to break the organization. Then yeah. I think almost going back and saying, we're not ready. Let's stay in touch. We'll come back in six months or 12 months or 18 months. You'd be amazed at how much people are like, wow, thanks for being honest about that. And they will come back and they will. And, and, and again, then you have a really high retention rate for customers, which again is one of the four metrics that matter a lot for SaaS businesses. Amazing. Uh, I got one more question I want to ask you. It's actually from the, from the audience here today. They, they've been putting their questions in the Q&A. Uh, and this is the top upvoted question. Now, there's a lot of questions, so we might we might shoot you over some questions uh, after the event, and maybe well, we can answer them. Pay it forward, I will definitely answer them. Amazing, okay. fantastic. But this one, this one comes from from Millicent, and she says, um, "I read from one of the articles that featured Michelle that the first hundred customers were really hard to get, and we heard it here too today. Looking back, if you lost all your skills today." What's the first thing you would do, Michelle, to get back to where you are now and get those first 100 customers? Yeah, yeah, look, you have to do things that aren't scalable up front to make it scalable later. And I sometimes people try and skip that unscalable, unscalable, unscalable step to make everything scalable. And yeah. I, I, even today I see it. I'm just like, well, have you called somebody and asked them why they signed up? Oh, no, we have too many customers. Well, why don't you, I mean, just take 10, call the 10 mm -hmm. last have signed up and asked them you have yeah. to call all of them and 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 so early on we did unscalable things i called every single person who signed up for cloudflare and did a what was then a skype call today would probably be a zoom call to hear why did you sign up what do you like about it what don't you like about it i mean many of those 
still message me today. Like it's just because these, and- these were the times during the IKEA uh, cardboard paper, right? Where you're still <laughs> coloring the things yeah. in for sure. Yeah, and so we were just we were we cared. We were showing up and we were doing these things. Now again, you can't call every. So I just think doing these unscalable things that matter. We um, early on, Matthew and I did a lot of the customer support. Again, we don't do that today. But early on, we didn't. We were the ones answering customers' questions because that made our product better. And we were like, "Oh, they're having a real problem with this or whatnot." And so we did a lot of unscalable things up front to help us scale the business to give you a pulse of why those customers are signing up. And at the end of the day, you're just trying to figure out what's the meaningful problem. How do you describe what you're doing in a way that resonates in the market? And the best way to figure that out are the people actually using it. And so we really try to a lot, connect with them online. We were online on like. Twitter and you know Reddit. So if, if you lost all your skills except for your skill of conversation and curiosity, you would talk to your customers and you would win back one by one those first hundred customers. I, well, I would say do unscalable things that are scale later. That's probably also a good spin on it. Amazing, Michelle. This was um, just super cool. Thank you so much. Thanks for hanging with us. Thanks for sharing your insights. Uh, just like a really huge thank you from everyone who's hanging out at today's event, but also just the entire TechTO community for taking the time to share your story and your insights with us tonight. Thanks, Michelle. Thanks so much for having me. And I'm rooting for all your success. And I hope you like feel like, wow, if Michelle can do it, so can I. And I can't wait to see what you all built. Amazing. Thank you.